Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest for this podcast, Kurt Ellis, who is the director of the Food Corps headquartered in New York City, and we'll talk about that in a separate podcast. But before that, had a career as a filmmaker and was the co-creator of a landmark film called King Corn, released in 2007 and aired on on the public broadcasting system in 2008. He was a co-creator of this with Ian Chaney and Aaron Wolf, and this was really a landmark film in bringing attention to food subsidy issues, the world of agriculture, and how food policy might be changed. Kurt, I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So let's talk about King Corn. So you were an undergraduate at Yale University, um, had an interest in these agriculture sort of issues, and then went on to create this film. How did this come about? It's sort of amazing for a college undergraduate then to become a film producer right away. Well, you know, we felt Americans would really enjoy watching a film uh, about watching corn grow. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we got interested while we were students at Yale. Ian and I were classmates. Uh, and we got interested in the, the fact that for all we were learning about history and philosophy and science, we were graduating from college knowing next to nothing about the most fundamental thing the food we were putting in our bodies every day. And we got really interested in reconnecting with where our food was coming from. And as we started doing that work, reconnecting with food and its origins, we learned just how much of our food was coming from one crop, from corn, in the form of high fructose corn syrup and corn-fed confinement raised meat. And we decided to, to tell that story uh, to the world through, through a film. So some, some of the people listening here will have seen King Corn, but for the people who haven't, tell us how the film took shape and what comes out in the film. So in the film, uh, Ian and I graduate from college. We're in the film as well as being storytellers of it. Uh, and we move to rural Iowa and grow one acre of corn the way a typical farmer might grow a 1,000 acres of corn. And the corn we're growing isn't sweet corn. It's uh, field corn. It's meant for processing. It's meant for use as animal feed for confined livestock, uh, the kind of miracle of the $1 hamburger. And it's meant for high fructose corn syrup and processing into soda and other sugar-sweetened products. So we spend the course of a year growing our acre of corn the way a typical farmer might grow their acre of corn. We plant genetically modified seeds. We uh, inject anhydrous ammonia fertilizer into the fields. We spray our acre of corn with uh, all kinds of herbicides and pesticides, and then we follow where our corn is destined to end up as food and come to learn really just how implicated our acre of corn is in America's obesity epidemic. And as we ask more and more questions about why this is the case, uh, we come to learn about farm subsidies and farm policy and the way in which uh, the federal government has really shaped the landscape of the United States and the foodscape that all of us uh, are living in, and come to feel that there is something uh, really at once remarkable about how abundant our food system is and how affordable our food is in America, but also something deeply troubling about the fact that we have skyrocketing rates of obesity and diabetes in America and significant problems of family farm loss and environmental degradation uh, related to chemical-intensive corn production. And it all kind of ties back to this very beautiful, simple square of golden corn growing in our acre in the middle of Iowa. So we'll come back and talk about the policy in just a moment. 
But the, the inputs that you mentioned creating this corn, so the genetically modified seed, pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, and things like that, is, are those things necessary to be competitive in modern agriculture these days? Absolutely. I mean, it, there are 90 million acres of corn grown in America today, and the vast, vast majority of that crop is grown in this highly industrialized way. And the reality is chemical-intensive agriculture has made abundance possible. Uh, yields are dramatically higher on each acre of corn today from what they were a generation or two or three ago. Um, and that has meant that, that food is unbelievably cheap, but it's a particular kind of food that becomes cheap under that system. And what are some of the downsides of that type of agriculture? Well, so from a, from a production standpoint, uh, the downsides are both cultural and ecological. Uh, they're cultural in that as tractors have gotten larger and more farms have become more mechanized, fewer people have been needed out on the land. There have been need for fewer farmers and fewer farm families. So the year we were living in Iowa, uh, the high school in the town where we were growing our corn consolidated with the high school of the next town over um, because there just weren't enough students left to fill the classrooms. So there's been a tremendous loss of people and loss of jobs and loss of vitality from rural America as a result of this uh, scaling up of corn production and the shift in the way we farm corn. From an environmental perspective, there's also been a significant cost to the way we grow corn today. Um, that comes both in the form of uh, resource extraction. So we fertilized our one acre of corn one time in the spring with a very typical application of anhydrous ammonia fertilizer. And just to apply that one acre's worth of, foot, of, of fertilizer, an acre's about the size of a football field, uh, the factory that made that fertilizer had to burn 2,000 cubic feet of natural gas to create the fertility for our cornfield. And uh, then in addition to resource extraction, there's a cost from ecological pollution. Uh, the kind of herbicides and pesticides we sprayed on our farm were actually the same ones that were implicated in uh, what we later learned was a, a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that our farmer's wife suffered uh, that is, according to her doctors, almost surely caused by long-term exposure to chemicals from agriculture in their w drinking water. The, the image that I had when I was growing up of, and I grew up in the Midwest, of what a farm was like is a, f a farm would have multiple crops. The crops would rotate to keep the, f the soil fertile. That sounds like a thing of the past, given what you're talking about. Yeah, the disconnect between what we see on food packages, that kind of image of the red barn and the silo and the cow standing in the grassy field munching on hay and the farm family and overalls leaning on a fence somewhere. That, that is such a thing of the past. It is amazing. Uh, the reality is these farms are thousands of acres in size uh, and they're incredibly mechanized and you can't actually take your kid in the cab of the tractor with you anymore because you're spraying a neurotoxin. And when you then followed the foods beyond the farm, what did you find? Um, so if you follow the story of corn, it, it gets doubly interesting once it actually leaves the farm. Um, in the case of American agriculture today, the majority of corn production actually goes to, to feed. Uh, livestock have, over the last 50 years, as corn has become cheaper and cheaper, uh, livestock have been moved into confinement. And uh, we now raise our hogs and chickens and cows uh, either indoors, uh, where oftentimes they'll live their entire lives without ever seeing the sun, uh, or outdoors in a feedlot situation where they have very little room to move around and no access to their kind of natural habitat 
cows, for instance, were, were grazers. They were meant to eat grass. Uh, and nowadays, cows spend uh, the last six months or a year of their life in a super intensive feedlot munching on corn. And to keep those cows alive under adverse conditions, we feed them a steady dose of antibiotics and we feed them hormones to move them through that system faster. And we get remarkably cheap meat out of a system like that. Uh, but it all comes at a significant cost at the end of the day to animal welfare. So I know some people have modeled the, the um, inefficiency of feeding the grain to the, to the animals and then eating that as, as food, whereas the initial grains could be eaten in some ways. Is, do you have a sense of how, how much of that? Uh, you had one acre, how much corn that would produce at the end, end of the harvest and how, how many cows that would feed? Just give us some sense of scale if you would. Yeah, interesting question. So um, uh, that acre of corn, that football field of corn, was incredibly productive. We grew 10,000 pounds of food, uh, which is quite remarkable. Um, processed into, into feed for livestock, you'd probably get about 4,000 corn-fed fast food hamburgers out of that 10,000 pounds of food. Um, probably more interesting in terms of its scale is the soda. If you were to take the starch of that corn and process it into high fructose corn syrup, you could sweeten 57,000 cans of soda from one acre's worth of corn. So uh, it's true that as in terms of the food value of the corn we were growing, it would have been most efficiently converted into real calories for real people by being ground up and served as cornmeal, for instance. Uh, once you process it through a cow, you lose a tremendous amount of efficiency uh, in terms of the number of pounds of corn that go into producing a pound of red meat protein. But in terms of something like soda, actually, the efficiency in some ways seems like it goes the other way. Uh, this relatively small uh, acre of land produces just an unbelievable flood of empty calories going into America's food system. Okay. And then when you think about the not only the, the efficiency of what the human can gain in terms of nutrition from the cow versus the, the grain that feeds the cow, there's also the environmental impact of those, those two things, which is really remarkable because then you get the cows contributing to the climate change and things like that. Absolutely. The, the way the American diet has shifted uh, over the last couple of generations uh, has had a really profound impact on the environment. And we see it now more and more as this kind of American model of agriculture, one in which we're eating a tremendous amount of meat, gets exported around the globe. We're only going to see those, those problems multiply. Right. The, all the trends show increasing meat consumption around the world, despite the known health consequences and environmental problems created by that. Absolutely. And it's easy to see the, the consequences related to heart disease and our own health if we all eat more meat around the world. But uh, every time you see a, a hamburger on the plate, you have to imagine the cornfield that stands behind it, too. Now, you said along the way of developing this film, you learned a lot about agriculture policy and how that shapes the modern farm environment. Could you explain some of that to us? Sure. So when, when farm subsidies first came about, uh, it was really a, a challenge of helping keep supply and demand in balance so that farmers could make a living in the marketplace growing and selling their crops. Uh, and the market wasn't too volatile, because if it gets too volatile, then farmers go out of business and suddenly we don't have enough food around. And the current subsidies go back how far? Well, we, we really started subsidizing grains in the 30s, but we did it in a different way. We actually managed supply and had farmers not grow corn on some of their ground in years where we felt like there was going to be a lot of corn in the marketplace. And that kept prices naturally high, and farmers made a living in the marketplace, um, and the marketplace wasn't flooded with cheap corn. 
then in the 1970s, we really switched the way our commodity programs work and decided to pay farmers to grow corn whether or not the market demanded it. And the end result was that for most of the last 40 years, we've really flooded the market with cheap corn. That's been less true in the last handful of years due to ethanol and some global shifts. But for most of the last 40 years, we've had a, a huge surplus of corn in the marketplace. And the end result of that has been the rise of the confinement feedlot industry, the rise of the high fructose corn syrup industry, and this need to process all of this abundant, cheap raw material into foods that you can then market back to consumers. Um, soybeans are, a, are an issue here as well. Could you explain why? Sure. So soybeans are really the sister crop to corn, and oftentimes farmers will actually rotate one year growing corn and the next year growing soybeans. Um, but if you think about the kind of raw materials for America's obesity epidemic, it really has been uh, high fructose corn syrup and partially hydrogenated soybean oil uh, at or near the center of, of the kind of cheap food that we've been running through our, through our veins in America. Um, and subsidies go just for soybeans as they do for corn. We, we reward production and encourage farmers to grow as much of these crops as possible. And flooding the market with um, low-cost corn and soybeans has affected the, the world agriculture picture, hasn't it? Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we, for a lot of this period when we had so much surplus corn, we would export the extra that we had. It wasn't going to be consumed in America. And the end result of that was that we undermined a lot of fragile foreign agricultural systems and uh, in, you know, made parts of Africa dependent on cheap U.S. corn. In strange ways made uh, Mexico the, the heartland where corn originally came from dependent on cheap U.S. corn. And uh, that introduced a tremendous amount of volatility and fragility into the, the global food system. So how would you recommend that um, agriculture policy be changed then, given what you're talking about? Well, I, the most important thing is to, is to remember that the farm bill is, is really predominantly a food bill. Uh, at the end of the day, the reason we have farm subsidies should be to serve America high-quality, uh, high-nutrient-value, sustainable food. And we have to ask ourselves whether the current subsidy system that we have in place is creating that kind of agricultural system. And if it's not, then we have to ask, what would we need to change in order to get there? What would be some of the changes you'd recommend? Um, well, we know already that uh, just the state of Iowa alone produces enough corn to feed the entire United States, their uh, usage of corn. But we also know that we don't grow enough fruits and vegetables across the entire country to feed what the government says we should be eating in terms of our recommended daily allowance of fresh fruits and vegetables. So uh, it seems like it would be a logical choice to, to emphasize corn production less and reward corn production less and emphasize fruit and vegetable production or reward fruit and vegetable production more, just for starters. Is it as simple as taking X billion dollars from corn and soybeans and giving it to the fruit and vegetable growers? Well, would that it were. That might be a reasonable start. Uh, but the reality is the Farm Bill is one of the largest and most complicated pieces of the legislation that we have. And it uh, affects everything from the SNAP benefit program that, uh, that food stamps have grown into to uh, issues of hunger and conservation on the farm. And uh, it can be very difficult to kind of untangle all those threads successfully. It's kind of like monkeying around in the tax code. It's worth doing, but it gets complicated fast. Well, you, you said that in the 1970s that the, the, what, the modern generation of agriculture policy took shape. And uh, I've, I've heard you say that 
tremendous industries have been built up around this, and, a, and an agriculture infrastructure has been created that won't be very easy to change. Tell me what you mean by that, if you would. Sure. So uh, there's been an interesting thing that's happened in the last few years, which is that corn prices have become fairly expensive in the marketplace uh, because of the boom in ethanol and subsidies for ethanol, which means we're kind of paying twice for that uh, that product, um, and because of shifts in global demand. Corn prices are right now relatively high, but we haven't seen a wholesale shift away from high fructose corn syrup and a wholesale shift away from confinement feeding of animals uh, in the food system. And the reason is because we've built the infrastructure of our food system around cheap corn. We've built the tremendously expensive high fructose corn syrup factories. We've built the giant cattle feedlots and the rail lines that go from the feedlots in Colorado to the slaughterhouses back to the supermarket chains. And changing that infrastructure is going to take a long time. We've got a lot of sunk costs as a nation in a, in a corn-fed food system. Now, there are big agribusiness companies that, with names that many Americans don't even know, Cargill, Monsanto, ADM, et cetera. What, how are they players in this? Well, they're, they're very significant players in that there's been a tremendous amount of consolidation in the food industry over the last few generations. And the result of that has been actually we've taken competition out of the food system. We've in many ways taken the free market out of the food system uh, by intervening with government policy and by enabling a handful of corporations to really develop a monopoly uh, over their parts of the, the food system. We've created a surprisingly stifling environment economically. And uh, I, I think there's real merit to looking freshly at that situation as we try to create more jobs in America and try to build a, a more just and fair and open capitalist system here. How can we, uh, in fact, create opportunities for entrepreneurs to come up with great ideas and uh, pursue them in our food system? So when you use the word monopoly in this context, I assume what you're referring to is the fact that many of the steps in the food chain are owned by a small number of companies. But would you mind explaining that concept a bit more? Sure. So there are a few ways in which uh, you really wind up having to be forced to cast your lot with a specific company or, in some cases, a handful of companies. But in the case of our acre of corn, uh, we planted a genetically modified seed on our acre. And it turns out that the seed we planted uh, is made to withstand a direct hit of a powerful herbicide. And so the seed would have been from Monsanto and the herbicide would have been Roundup? In our case, actually, the seed was from Bayer and, okay. the, uh, and the spray was uh, also a glyphosate made okay. by Bayer. Same but concept. the s concept applies in all cases, which okay. is the same company that makes the seed makes the fertilizer that makes the pesticide that you have to apply to that okay. seed. So um, once you make a first decision to start working with that company, you're in deep. Also, in a parallel situation, if we then sold our corn to a hog farm, which we might well have done, uh, there's just a handful of packing plants that control the meat industry. And they wind up, uh, those individual companies wind up financing the construction of hog farms and actually own pigs as they go all the way through the food chain, from birth all the way to slaughter to being put on a supermarket shelf. Uh, a handful of companies really control that end of the food system. And it means if you are a small-scale independent hog farmer, you don't have a choice but to align yourself with one of those big companies and do what they tell you to do. And 
does how does the farmer get treated in that process? Well, the end result is the farmer winds up taking all the risk in the in the system. Uh, the farmer is the one who has to go out on a limb to get the infrastructure in place for this, and then the companies can decide at any point we don't need those pigs anymore, or you need to produce twice as many pigs, or you need to produce those pigs more cheaply. And the farmer is the one who has to then figure out how to make that happen. And uh, it's a very sad thing because we we think of America's farmers as these fiercely independent entrepreneurial, spirited, yeoman citizens, and we've really uh, taken all the agency away from them. If you look at the number of things that could potentially be accomplished through agriculture policy, help address health, diabetes, obesity issues, conserve the environment, help address hunger, feed the world, all these sort of things, is there any way that these different issues and needs can line up around a a sensible agriculture policy? And are you optimistic that that might eventually occur? Absolutely. I I think they have to. Uh, The reality is, at the end of the day, you know, the the fundamental things are still the most important things. Food and water and clothing and shelter are the basics. And unless we can figure out how to meet those basic needs sustainably and responsibly and equitably and in a way that is healthy for the, the people who are eating food and the farmers who are producing it, uh, unless we can figure out how to do that with these fundamental things, we don't even have a chance of doing them with, with any of the, the frosting on top in our lives. And do you see signs that things are moving in a good direction? Very much so. I mean, there's tremendous leadership that's come out of Washington, D.C. over the last few years, uh, and you know, Michelle Obama's leadership is the most obvious of that, but we see it very much at USDA right now, and a uh, huge swell of momentum in Congress on both sides of the political aisle to deal with the fact that um, food really matters. Food is fundamental, and uh, we've got to get it right. Good. It's really nice to hear that note of optimism because so much rides on this. So much of human health and well-being and the vitality of economies depend on it. So it's nice that you see things going in a positive direction. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Our guest was Kurt Ellis today, um, co-creator and um, producer of the movie King Corn and also a co-founder and director of the Food Corps. Uh, Please join us for our other podcasts with Kurt on issues related to the Food Corps and visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org where you'll find a variety of resources on food and food policy issues. Thank you.